inspired theme. Today's episode, Tenebrae. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum podcast. Uh, I'm Ryan from the moonisdeadworld.net and I'm joined with my co-host, Martin. How's it going? Uh, we're back as ever, and uh, today we're covering um, a film that I really, really enjoy. I actually changed up our introduction to the podcast today to mimic the uh, synth score of this film. Uh, now, a lot of you uh, probably know them as Goblin, but really the, the composers of the Tenebrae soundtrack were not really technically Goblin since Goblin was broken up at that time. It was only performed by uh, Claudio Simonetti, um, Fabio Pignatelli, and Massimo Moranti. Um, so they technically weren't Goblin uh, at that time, but uh, they're close enough. So we're we're going to call them Goblin throughout this podcast, I would say, because I'm not going to go ahead and break them down by name. That's, well, I know. I'd, I'd be like... Am uh, I Italian here? I'm not Italian. I can't <laughs> say their names. I was going to say, that'd be like... Um... If you call everything uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, but yeah, it's too, it's but, too but, but like, but you know, it's like, oh, on that album, Neil Young wasn't there. It's like, who cares? Just, yeah, yeah, CSNY. No, nah, it's just too, it's just too complicated. So we're gonna just call, <laughs> call him Goblin <laughs> throughout this. But yes, we are talking about uh, the the fantastic Jello film by Dario Argento called Tenebrae. And um, you have never seen Tenebrae before. I've never seen a Jello you, before. You've never seen a Jello before. Never seen an Argento. F- have you? No. Seen an Argento film? No. Because no, it's it is possible that you've not seen a Jello film, but you've seen an Argento film. I have not seen a Dar. I know for a fact I've never seen a Dario Argento film. You've seen films he's worked on. Uh one. Yes. And that's. Uh, once Upon a Time in the West, probably yep. my favorite Western of all time. Which I was actually very surprised to see that he had worked on that, but it's, it wasn't really out of the ordinary for, um, you know, more niche genre directors. And, and Well, I mean, I wouldn't say, I mean, well, yeah, Sergio Leone was a yeah. niche, niche director at the time, yeah. but I mean, by that time, it's his fourth, you know, his fourth Western, and just getting bigger and bigger, and like, so... To me, to me, like, because uh, he uh, co- apparently co-wrote it with uh, Leone, but it's funny just because I don't see what the possible need for that probably was, just because Leone always had, like, a clear, specific vision on, like, how he wanted to, you know, do things, so I don't know where in that process of writing, you know, the screenplay... Yeah, I don't know. Dario Argento came in. Yeah, I mean, it looks like in the beginning of Dario's career, he would... He- you know he's known for directing, especially Giallo's, but he was also a, a big writer. Um, he, I believe, he actually wrote more than he directed, and um, you know it looks like he wrote quite a few of those uh, action westerns and the beginning of his career, especially in the the late '60s when he was first starting out with the 
basically in, in the business. Yeah. Um, then moving on, he started working on more of his own interests, especially in the horror sphere, um, with all the, with all the shallow films. Um, you know, his, uh, mother trilogy with Suspiria and, um, some of the other films that he worked on, uh, like Phenomena. Um, but the, the ones that really he's most well known for are obviously Suspiria and Tenebrae. And Tenebrae is not part of that mother's trilogy, but it still has a lot of the same facets of what you would come to expect from an Argento film, especially during his more, you know, his, his horror days, not, not so much in the Western days, but in the horror days. So Tenebrae is a, a really good starting point for someone like yourself who has not seen a giallo before. Now I was going to ask, <clears throat> uh, being the layman when it comes to uh giallo films, like what specifically is, a giallo film. What makes up a giallo film? Like what? Like what is the genre specifically? Because coming away from this, um, if you know, like I said, being the layman when it comes to this type of film, mm-hmm. if I was just watching this, I could come away from it just saying it's just a slasher film in Italian, basically with with a more thriller aspect to it and like kind of. Trying to figure out, you know... Yeah, like a whodunit sort of thing. Yeah, and that's... I mean, the the line is really very difficult to figure out. And at this time, well, for Tenebrae, not so much. But in prior Giallo films, before this time, uh, slasher films wouldn't have really come into the norm at that time. So this is kind of... They're kind of in the same area, but... I want to say that Giallos are a little bit earlier because some of them extend right into like the late sixties, like, which would be before like yeah, Black exactly. Christmas, yeah. late sixties were like a, a and even and then after that the seventies big big times for for Giallo films. So they're they're a little bit earlier than slashers, but certainly they do share a lot of the same characteristics. You know, you've got kids getting killed, especially a lot during like sex scenes or like similar ideas like that. Um, you have like one specific person often from a point of view and those are all shared characteristics. So I'm not saying that that's like a Jawa film specifically, but um, it is like a, a form of what's shared between slashers and jealous. And obviously a lot of slashers are indebted to Jawa film. Like Friday the 13th is very much indebted to um, Mario Bava's Twitch of the death nerve uh, or um, Bay of blood, which is, basically kind of the same thing it's the same sort of uh film as friday the 13th has a lot of the same tropes uh there's actually a scene do you know the scene in friday the 13th where um uh kevin bacon's in it and he's getting you know stabbed through the bed yeah there's this very 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 similar scene in bay of blood slash twitch of the death nerve uh which is like very straight up like right out of the same same idea um ultimately there is let's see um so like that owes quite a bit to it and i was just trying to find an image here so that you could see uh like the same uh yeah the same sort of styles so you can see this picture right here looks very similar to kevin bacon's death within mm-hmm. Friday the 13th. There, you know, certainly Friday the 13th is indebted to 
that film. Um, and a lot of people say that that's actually kind of stolen from Bay of Blood. So Mario Bava, um, obviously one of the greats in the Giallo uh, genre and influenced our own podcast name, Blood of uh, the Blood and Black Rum podcast comes from uh, Blood and Black Lace, which is another Giallo film that he directed. And just to throw that back to Tenebrae real quick, uh, his son, Lamberto Bava, uh, who's also a prominent Italian horror director, is in Tenebrae. Real quick, as, a, as an elevator electrician. So, um, that's just to throw it back to Tenebrae real quick. But moving back into the Giallo discussion, uh, Giallo actually means yellow in Italian. So, the yellow is really based on, like, what is considered pulp. Like pulpy, pulpy stuff within um, uh, Italian, th- like a thriller genre. They mm. like the there was a yellow because of the books that they used to trade. Kind of like if you think about our own pulp in America, how they had those pulpy books that kind of had like the dames in distress on them on the covers and stuff like that. It's kind of like the noir thrillers that we mm. had. Similarly, yellows were like that. So they were like yellow covers of of paperback thrillers that were being distributed. And so the Jello film came about because they had similar qualities, qualities to those, those books, you know, they're, they're certainly inspired by that. And then, you know, there's, there's lots more that we could talk about. I don't really want to take the whole episode to talk about, you know, f- the film aspect of like what influenced Jello's cause there's more than that. There's German thrillers that were also influenced you know, Italian horror, and they were coming out around the same time. It's very, very, you know, all convoluted, uh, very similar ideas out all at the same time. But um, this film is definitely a giallo because uh, of what we've come to consider the ultimate giallo experience, which is point of view of the killer, um, twisty, twisty uh, plot that you're not really sure throughout like who is the killer that it's it's asking you uh who's doing this killings if you think about our slashers um there's not really a question most of the time of who's doing the killing unless it's scream unless it's scream yeah and for the most part well as i say i think um if you want to d- differentiate between like this film and say like a traditional um, American slasher, this, the killer is established. Yeah. The whole point of, like, our slasher films is, like, alright, you know this person's a killer, you want to see them go and kill. Kill. The only, yeah. like, the only time, and this is where you might, where you said, like, it connects back to, uh, being influenced by Jallo, Friday, uh, Friday the 13th, first film in the series is, doesn't have, you know, Jason as the killer. It's yeah. his mom, Mrs. Voorhees. And that one does ask you kind of who is this killer because we don't, you know, throughout that one, you don't know. And that's kind of a a big thing of uh, a big reveal towards the end of who is this killer. And you're right. I mean, definitely owes a lot to, you know, Bay of Blood because that is a a big thing within that film as well. Um, But overall, if you look at like, you know, again, it's like um, you're looking at Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street. There's no question like who is doing the killings. We know who's doing the killings because they're kind of monstrous in a way that we it doesn't matter who they are matters how to mm. stop them yeah um and it's it does because they're always human for the most part i mean italian horror did venture into paranormal a lot but but for the most part in traditional giallo film it they're a human killer 
And the point is to figure out who it is. Uh, because it is someone that you've seen. And it doesn't, and doesn't that, if you think about it, wouldn't that be a more effective way of making a horror film? Yeah. Isn't it scarier to think, you know... This is a, a real person. A real person and is capable of doing such things and stuff. You know, again, like, like, I, I can understand... Because, like, at the same time, Halloween, the first one sets up, like, Mike Myers. He's a monster, but at the same time, he is human. Yeah, because you know he's been in an asylum, you know. But and then Loomis as, has yeah. kind of gotten through to him. He's been working with him. He's the only one that really has uh, any... And you can believe that he would him. somehow, like, you know, because he is a, you know, a big guy. You can some, you can believe that he would be able to, you know, you know, overpower and, and escape, escape death. Yeah. But as the films go on, it's, you know, yeah, that becomes the, the whole, the whole metaphor of being the boogeyman becomes, he is the boogeyman. Yeah. And it's, it's the same thing with, uh, you know, as you said, like Friday, uh, Friday 13th, like Jason, it's first his mom, which, okay, that makes, you know, it makes sense. She's a human. She's pissed off that her son died. And then when it comes to Jason being the killer, he just goes, you know, stronger and, you know, he goes to hell and comes back and in space and yeah. can't kill him. And then same thing with Freddy. Oh, he was a human, but then he got killed. Now he's a, you know, spirit that haunts you and shit. Can't yeah. kill him. I mean, and even if you think of like Black Christmas, even Billy as a person is really not that important. It's not important mm. that we know who is doing the killings, even though that is a, a part of it. I mean, you can see the Jello influence there as well. Even John Saxon, who also stars mm. in Tenebrae, he's in that film. Um, you can see the Jello influence there because we're forced to question um, the boyfriends that are there. Um, maybe they're doing it. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's a ripper that's like killed the other young girl that's around. Um, so that has some Jello influence, but is more clearly an American or. Canadian slasher film um, than what you would expect from Italian films. So there is a difference and discerning people can pick it out. Um, but like I said, the biggest ones are, you know, you got your black gloves. So this is a big one. You've got um, beautiful Italian women who are being murdered in ways that you would think should be like very horrific. And yet they come out sort of beautiful in a, in a morbid sense, like the, the murders, even though they're violent, their death scene is, is structured in such a way that it's almost like, wow, that's a form of art of how they were murdered. Um, with, with Tenebrae, when we'll talk about it a little bit, that's not, not so much the case as something like Suspiria, which, uh, Argento's other film really uses death as art, uh, to the point where things become almost, too surrealistic at, at times. Like, it's like, well, really, is there going to be a room full of barbed wire anywhere? Like, that's really what happens in the spirit. It's like, yes, that's a crazy death, and that comes out to be sort of beautiful in its creative artwork, but really is, you know, is there, you a know... Practicality. A practicality to, like, a ballet uh, recital uh, building having, like, a, a string of barbed wire just in a room. <laughs> like, we'll put that there for now. <laughs> pretty dangerous out in the hallways we'll put it in the room and hopefully no one goes in there um but yeah so the nut the nut, we're doing the nutcracker this year and it's the fact we're this time we're setting it during world war ii yeah so. yeah we need authentic barbed wire <laughs> um but yeah so does that break the giallo film uh, film 
the genre down for you a little bit better. Yeah, than, it, than like, what? Yeah, like I said, like for the most part, going into this, I didn't, I don't know really anything about Jalo films. I do know Dario Argento. I do know, they like said I do know Suspiria. I don't know much about it, but I know a lot of people who like the you know Jalo films, such as yourself. I always hear like that's like one of the first things I guess is Suspiria. You know, yeah, you know, um, it's a big one. So I I kind of know like a little bit. I do know. A little bit too about like common themes in Italian films, like sexuality, sex. You know, is always like a big thing, and as you said, like kind of how they structure like death. Um, but overall, like yeah, I just it's never it's not anything that I would say I've been interested in, just because it's never anything that I ever come across. It's not like like to be fair, like we're around here, especially when we're in, like high school, unless you were kind of, you know, digging around the internet and already kind of had, like, a built-in interest in, like, horror films already, which, as I've said before in the podcast, I haven't, I don't really have that big of an interest in horror films. Yeah. Um, I, I do like, you know, like, I like hammer horror, I like, I do like, you know, some slasher films, but that's just because of, like, the 90, late 90s and mid-90s, you had a kind of a boom in slasher films mm-hmm. again. And, like, you know, like, universal horror and, like, some other things. But, like, kind of, like, but, like, a very broad just interest in horror is what I have. Like, you know, again, like, Romero. But other than that, like, I just, you know, it's never anything that's really fully appealed to me, so. Yeah, and, you know, you it's, it's funny that you mentioned the um, um, Hammer Horror films because a lot of those are... Um, really in some some i should say some not all um are influenced by giallo films as well they they have uh, sometimes have black gloved killers well i was gonna say but uh, like to be fair like with the hammer horror i didn't get into that until college yeah like i like was just like looking like oh like chris lee you know like i've never really seen chris lee as dracula and like peter cushing i love peter cushing and so i started watching like the hammer like the 60s hammer dracula films i'm like these are great i love them and then watch, like, the Hammer Frankensteins. Like, oh, you know. Yeah. I mean, you have, like, like I was thinking of Hands of the Ripper, which is a similar, like, actually released in the same time period as Giallo Films, which certainly was taking some some inspiration or, or sharing inspiration with some of the Giallo Films. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that when, after you've watched a few Giallo Films, you certainly become accustomed to its themes, and you also see that a lot of them have their have some very surreal qualities to them. Um, like I said, with Tenebrae, you don't you don't really get that as much. This is this one is is a lot more grounded in reality. There's not really any ventures into like, whoa, that was crazy. I don't know why that happened. But some of the other films, well, I was gonna say there's it's not as I say there's a. Few scenes in this film that aren't. I'm not gonna say they're like overly sur- surrealistic or, uh, or like you know just out there because they're not. Yeah. Um, but they're dreamlike sequences. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're supposed to you know represent a certain character's past. Yeah. But the film doesn't really tell you that. But if you kind of like paying it, like if you are paying attention. You can tell, like, oh, this is supposed to be kind of, like, either a dream or, like, a flashback. Yeah. Because the film jumps from, like, something happened, then it just goes to that, and then it goes back to, you know, what was going on. Yeah. I mean, there are some that really are so 
jumbled like that, that they become difficult to parse. It's very hard to understand, like, exactly what is what is happening. Quentin, in this, in this Quentin case, Tarantino took notes. Yeah, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he's very influenced by the job. I can't make Kill Bill in all my films in uh, sequential order. I gotta have them all over the place. But that's the thing with, like, um, Spaghetti Westerns 2 and Jowls. They, you know, they shared, they're Italian. They also share that not a lot of people are going to watch them and be like, I'm really, I really like these films. You know, not everyone is going to be attracted to that style. A lot of people would watch Tenebrae and they would think, well, this is pretty ridiculous and, and also very violent. I don't know why anybody would want to, like, watch this type of film. And it's the same thing with Spaghetti Westerns because instead of, you know, the violence, there's the length for one thing or the well, it does slow have, pacing. It, well, as I say, or, it does have the violence. It does too. sometimes, But, yeah. I mean, you're not, because you are right, because to be fair, a lot of people think, when it comes to like Spaghetti Westerns, they think the cream of the crop. You think the four, you know, Leone's films, you think, you know, Fistful of Dollars, which, in retrospect, it's a good film, but is it great? No. Same, yeah. thing, same thing with A Few Dollars More. I like A Few Dollars More, too, but is it, like, a great film? I don't know. It's, you know. Yeah. Then, like, put the good and the bad... People think instantly. The good, the bad, the ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West. And it's like... Those are not just great spaghetti westerns. Those are great films. They're great, yeah. So, so like, you're already, like, reaching the peak. It's not like you're watching <laughs> Man, Pride, and Vengeance. Yeah. Or... Two uh, Mules for Sister Sarah. Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Or, or uh, Leone's sequel to uh, Once Upon well, a Time in the West. West. Well, it's not a sequel, but it, I mean, his next Spaghetti Western he did was Duck You Sucker. It's not a bad film. It's a, it's a, it's you know it's an all right film, but it's almost three hours long. Stars yeah. James Coburn, and it's nowhere near as exciting as his previous <laughs> film. So yeah. you. And it's more like and it does feature more surrealistic qualities in it because you have like these dreamlike, lucid flashbacks going on in it. And you, if again, you you if you come and watch that, like coming off the good and the bad, you're like, what the fuck am I watching? You know? Yeah, I think the biggest. This will be. We'll kind of end the introduction here before we move into the other stuff. But I think one of the biggest attractions for me about both Jalu and Spaghetti Westerns is that there are so many of them. To get through, you almost feel like this is great. Like I have so many to look forward to, even if they're not good. Because I, I'll be honest with you, a lot of Jalo films are not good. They 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 have uh, some huge flaws in them, either storytelling flaws or they're just poorly made or whatever. Same thing with spaghetti westerns. There's a ton of spaghetti westerns that really are not very good. We've experienced a yeah. few, um, and. You know, but the thing is, I'm still excited to watch the rest that I haven't seen yet because there's so many of them. See, for me, why I love spaghetti westerns, I mean, usually, for the most part, I, I want a film to have, like, a great plot and well-developed characters. But the one thing I do, like, I can, I can forgive a spaghetti western for maybe not being, like, the greatest at telling a story or having, like, the greatest characters because I love, like, the overall, for the most part attention to detail, just, like, comparing a spaghetti western to, like, a traditional American western, like, John Wayne in a bright, you know, blue shirt and, right, you know, it compared to a spaghetti western where it's dark and gritty. Not not necessarily in tone, but just, like, in, like, the... Often uh, how you see the How setting. the outfits and yeah. the setting, it, it feels more like, like, this is what actually happened, not 
eating out of wood bowls. I love that. <laughs> I wish I had a few wood bowls. It, it just, you know, because again, like, not to like use him constantly as a reference, but Leone, like, that's one of the things when he made his films, like, what, like you wouldn't see in an American Western, like, you don't see in The Magnificent Seven anyone wearing a fucking duster. Probably because if you did, you'd have Yul Brynner and I'm bitching like it's too hot to be wearing this. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But in like Spaghetti Westerns, they're wearing dusters. Why? Because that's how, you know, they, you know, the directors and they took the time to like pay, pay attention to that level of detail. And that's why I, you know, that like yeah. attracts, is one of the main attractions for me when it comes to Spaghetti Westerns. Um, even So like even like a bad one. Like two mules for Sister Sarah, I could like you know get over with because it's like that's still got that great aesthetic and look and and Clint Eastwood and Clint who, who can help who helps the film, but not nah. well. You could tell he didn't give a shit though. Not nah, really. Not nah, that really. one. He nah, like because really. you can tell he's like I yeah. I want to do something. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm gonna be doing this for the rest of my life unless like like you know yeah. He's, I gotta get in something good. He's feeling like Leonard Nimoy when, like, he's like, I'm sick of being Spock. Yeah, somebody, pretty much. Somebody, please. Like, you want to be in this movie, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Yes, please! Sure. Sure. As long as I'm not doing Spock anymore. Alright, let's take a break. Um, we're gonna listen to uh, a promo for uh, one of our friends' podcasts. Uh, his name is Gore Blimey, and he's uh, doing this uh, podcast called The Trilogy of Terror. Where he takes three films from a, a specific director, and he talks about all three and how they kind of match up with the director's themes and and all of that stuff. So it's a pretty interesting podcast. Just getting started, uh, and uh, here, just let him tell you the story. Hello, I'm Gore Blimey, and I'm your host on the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Each month, I'll look at one director and talk about three of their horror movies. Kicking things off in episode one with Lamberto Bava, the man who brought us demons. Now, the horror films might not always be scary, or even good, but, well, if that happens, what movie and pizza night isn't all the better for a bit of extra cheese? Come and check out the show at gentlemansgrindhouserecords.com or find it on iTunes and Stitcher. The Trilogy of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies. Definitely go check out Gore Blimey's Trilogy of Terror. Uh, it's a pretty uh, great podcast, and uh, you definitely support it. It's so. a great and interesting idea, too. I, you know. Yeah, I like the idea a lot. I really do. And um, he also does mini-episodes as well, so he'll cover, like, another movie that he didn't get to cover with one of the other, with, from one of his directors, or, you know, he'll cover things that he doesn't really get to cover within the episode itself, so it's pretty cool. Uh, I like the the uh, the way that he's covering everything, and... Um, it does. It helps that his voice is nice and sultry. Oh, that's what happens when you're from the motherland. That's <laughs> that's right. Uh, so definitely check that out. Very cool podcast. Um, but we hope you come back to ours as well. So don't like, you know, you can listen to two. You know, you don't have to subscribe to one or the other. The more the merrier. That's right. Um, this week we don't have a whole lot to talk about in terms of what we're drinking. Um, but, because uh, we're, like, trying to finish up some stuff. Um, like, for you, I have, uh, you've been drinking some of my, my Oktoberfest, like the Sam Adams Oktoberfest that we had uh, on the previous podcast. I yeah, I cheaped, I cheaped out this week. I didn't bring you didn't, anything. You didn't get anything, which is fine. And I didn't get anything <laughs> either, because I haven't really been home. Well, I was going to say, I, I, didn't have, I haven't had time to go to, like, you know, like, oh, yeah, let's uh, go and look and try this or that. Um... 
be honest with you, outside of last week when I brought that Saranac uh, cold brew coffee beer, um, I haven't really seen much, like... New stuff. New stuff. Well, new stuff that like really intrigues me. Mm. I do. I mean, there's just Oktoberfest ceremony. So, like, if there's any uh, new Oktoberfest that I see around that I haven't had yet, well, go. well, that yeah, that I mean, that's it. But I think I'm gonna go with. I haven't. I don't think I've ever had Goose Island's Oktoberfest. Which, I mean, I, I think I, I, ha- I, I like Goose Island. I mean, I don't think it's the greatest, but I I will get it because I haven't had it yet. I can't. Remember. Maybe <clears throat> I'm thinking of Brooklyn, but I think I've, Brooklyn's Oktoberfest I've had, and that's good. Like um, the only, I think the only Goose Island I've actually ever had is their Honkers Ale, and I didn't like you it. Weren't hu- yeah, you weren't I thought, Island. like, it was a v- very mediocre for the price point, so, yeah. like, it's kind of turned me off. Hmm. But I, from what I've heard, like, ever since they got, uh, I think they got bought out by Bud InBev, uh, I think, uh, someone said, I've read online, like, ever since they got bought out, their beer as a whole has gone down the shitter. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. It's like the same thing with like Red Hook. Yeah, I I, I think that's probably true. I, I I do. Yeah, Red Hook too. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, but I I want to pick up, even though I've had it. Like I want to get Sierra Nevada's Oktoberfest. Um, I want to get Harpoon's Oktoberfest because I do think they do a good Oktoberfest as well. And even even you don't hear us talk about this much, but even Magic Hat. They're yeah, Hex Oktoberfest. Is back? Well, normally they do do the Night of the Living Dead pack and a 12-pack of Hex. It wasn't the, they didn't have it last really? year. Remember, uh, remember we looked for it? Yeah, I mean, I think they do have it, but we just didn't find it. I mean, maybe if it was in the 12-pack, then yeah, because it's like, oh, I get two Hexes and then everything else is sh- shite. Yeah, well... It's, <laughs> it's well, like... Yeah, because like, like, they do the Night of the Living Dead pack, or you can get the... Um... You can get the uh, Hex Oktoberfest and, um, at, in like a 12-pack. And that's what I much prefer because then you get... You, when you get the Hex or the Night of the Living Dead Pack, you get all those crazy beers in Wasn't it last year the, the 12-pack was the Granny Smith Apple Ale or the Wilhelm Scream? I could have um, swore it was the it Wilhelm... It was last year because I got it and I still have a Wilhelm Scream from last year. Yeah, so it had to be the, in the twelve pack. Uh, the twelve pack, because if it, because we haven't, like I said, we haven't had the hex in like about three years. Yeah. So I'm imagining it hasn't come out in a twelve pack since then because hmm. I'm pretty sure it's the Wilhelm. I mean, please correct us if there's any Magic Hat aficionados hmm. out there. Please correct us. But I'm pretty sure it's the Wilhelm scream. They were f- featuring their pumpkin, uh, pumpkin ale. Yeah, which I still have. <laughs> um, I am drinking. Uh, some whiskey tonight, actually. Uh, it's uh, Basil Hayden's whiskey, which is really good. Comes in a nice little fancy bottle. Uh, got it from a friend for helping him out with um, something with his uh, with his uh, master's degree. So um, I enjoy it quite a bit. It's very smooth. Um, you know, it's still got like that that smoky uh, bourbon taste, but very very smooth. Um, I definitely recommend it. I like drinking it straight. It's the best way to do it. So I don't really like to mix bourbon. No. It's the best to do it straight. If you gotta mix it, you make a Manhattan. Manhattans are delicious. Or a whiskey sour. Or well, I wouldn't even I wouldn't use Basil Hayden's for that. I'd use like a, a cheap mix. Well, yeah, mix. like yeah. an old granddad, but I mean I'm just I'm mm. just throwing that out there. Cause I I do have 
whiskey that I'm using, that bourbon that I use just for whiskey sours. I have uh, something like, some like War, War Eagle or something like that, I think it's called, well, that I well, use just for whiskey sours. Well, with a name like War Eagle, how could it be cheap? That's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, we're slacking on you today for Blood and Black Rum Podcast, unfortunately. Probably next next time we'll have a new beer to try. We something. better. Yeah. Well, probably next week Winter Lagers will be out already. Well, actually, I want to get the Sam Adams Fall Pack, because that has some good stuff in it. It's got the Hoppy Red Ale. Uh, it's got... A Maple Bach, I think. Maple Bach, yep. Um, definitely, not, it's got their Oktoberfest and I'm kind something of, else, too. I'm Can't kind remember. of disappointed their, uh, the Rockback's not back in there, because that was pretty yeah. good. I am glad they didn't put a pumpkin in there, though. Cause I, I like if, their pumpkin, though. I mean, yeah, but if you're like me, who's, I'm not a huge fan of pumpkin, so a lot of times those go till last. Like, I, I save them till last, and I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll drink it. Uh, I like they it. Got, they got a new one. that they, Actually, every year they come out with, like, a new uh, named pumpkin beer. So this year it's 20 pounds of pumpkin beer. Yeah, I saw that. I was, and it's, like, cause different. Because they, they, they do have a 12-pack of that. I saw that. Like, last year was a different name. Right, I think something the pumpkin batcher, yeah, something else, or their pumpkin. So like every year they come out with harvest. A new, usually it's yeah, like har- harvest, harvest pumpkin or yeah. something. It's so like every year they come out with a new name for their pumpkin ale. <laughs> I don't know if it's different. Well, it's well, it's like there's it's like the spring seasonal too. Every year it's a new one. We get, oh, it's Whitewater IPA. Now it's Alpine Spring, and we're bring now we're bringing back Noble Pills again. And it's like yeah. they, it's like Jim Cook can't make up can't his make mind. up his mind. Whatever sells better. Well, if you probably had it his way, it'd be summer ale all year round. Summer is my least favorite. Rebel Rider all year round is our seasonal. <laughs> the double IPA. The dipper. All right. You ready to talk about Tenebrae? I am. All right. You want to start it off? Or, well, actually, I'll start off with like a little uh, synopsis of Tenebrae. Uh, Tenebrae follows um, one, basic, one man in particular. Uh, he's a writer. He's uh, a writer of the popular book Tenebrae and many other books apparently because everybody in the film seems to have read like every one of his novels well as I told you anytime in a movie or a TV show you have a character mainly a protagonist who is an author of some sort everybody he runs into has they've read it they love it read their book he could be in the Appalachian Mountains and, <laughs> and like Deliverance like if Burt Reynolds in Deliverance was an author in the middle of butt fuck nowhere he could be running yeah. into these people and be like hey you that yeah. writer I love that book can't read love it though people have read it yeah. people have read it yeah you said like now like nowadays if someone was like oh yeah I'm a writer and the, the uh, people would not hesitate to be like oh, I haven't heard of you <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, and because so many people can claim that they're a writer and they've released like one self-published no- novel and it's like, yeah, I'm a writer. And it's like, but yet no one has read you. Well, and <laughs> I, either that or I can see people today being like, oh, so you're a writer? You're as good as fucking Dean Coons. I read your book. It was me. Yeah. You're not on the number one bestseller list. Bill, so. Bill, I, Bill O'Reilly's better. <laughs> Hammond is a ghostwriter. I don't know. But, but I, I, like I said, I just always, that's always that comical. It, it it's always comical happens. just because it's like, because, like I said, like, every, everyone's like, not just, they didn't just read the book, but they're like, oh, I love your they book. They love it. Yeah. They I have, love- like, copies at home. They've read multiple, uh, like, 
Name name a person that you can think of that's read like every one of Dean Koontz's books. He has like sixty books. No one has read every single one of them. I'm, I would be very surprised if any of our listeners, anybody, has read every single one of Dean Koontz's books or Stephen King's books. I haven't read every every one of those books. See, I I would be that person who is like, uh, oh, well, whatever, because I don't read. Coming as a educated man, I don't read. I I I don't read novels. Yeah, I just they just don't really intrigue me that much. I am much more interested in just reading like news and textbooks and like history his, books. History that that is interest- a very fun person. <laughs> <laughs> that that like interests me. Like I could read like Thomas Paine's Common Sense and be like, yeah, like this you know this interests me. But if, yeah, like I, like my friend our friend let us borrow. Let me borrow 1984 by George Orwell, which is a book I have wanted to read for years. Same thing with uh, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, because everyone that's ever read it has told me, like, oh, you're Holden Caulfield. You gotta, yeah. I'm fucking Holden Caulfield. And I've wanted to read it, too. I've had those for almost two months now, and I just look at them, like, every day, and I'm like, eh. Well, you gotta, you gotta think of them as history, because they are now, uh, really. It's the same thing with you. You lent me... The complete work of Franz Kafka's short story stories, works. and I love the Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. I love it. It was one of my favorite like short stories we read in all of high school, and I've read like maybe the first two ones, two ones when I was on jury duty six years ago, and I just, I just kind of look at him. Like, eh. Well, to be fair, his his work is difficult. So like that, no, those, first, that but, but, those first two stories in that that story, uh, that complete series, they're difficult stories i mean but i like them though but yeah. at the same time it's just like yeah i i look when i look at novel i mean it's just like i just oh, like uh yes just... where well, we're off topic here. <laughs> <laughs> uh so we were talking about peter neal is our main character uh he's a writer wrote this book called tenebrae very violent book apparently he's getting interviews about it people talk about how depraved it is the killer in there is he, you know, he's going, but he's going after these people who are also depraved. Apparently, one of them is a gay man, and that in in this film is depravity for this one character who says that. Um, and so, uh, Tenebrae really, as a film, its plot mimics what people think of of horror films and horror in general. In that, oh, people who watch that, they must be weird it must be messed up in some way you want to watch somebody get killed you you know why are you watching that what 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 about that is interesting to you in the same way that's what tenebrae brings up because the killer who has been sending notes to peter neal and he's been kind of killing based on the book tenebrae um he's he's saying that peter has corrupted him in some way that reading his novel has corrupted him and now he's killing and eventually will end up killing Peter in order to kill the corrupter. Well, well which is funny because um, throw a little bit of America in there. Um, why doesn't the reader take uh, the killer, take responsibility? You didn't have to read the fucking book. That's right. You could have read the first chapter and been like, ooh, this is, you know, or wherever <laughs> it starts to get, you know, depraved and be like, done, I'm out. Yeah. I can't read this anymore. I, I can't read. It's very strictly Catholic. Well, even though the the killer believe you know is uh, for abortion and divorce, but strictly Catholic and, stri- and also doesn't like gays. Everything yeah. else, yeah, <laughs> doesn't like. Yeah, I mean, at least he 
he's at forthright with it. He's saying the gays are depraved. And and really, it's surprising. Tenebrae and Dario Argento in general takes a very, like, liberal stance on that sort of thing. R- right away, there's, first of all, there's, there's a lesbian couple that's very, you know... <laughs> Let's face it here. Dario Argento is not using that as like a political agenda. It's more so to titillate viewers that, oh, there's a lesbian couple on there. And look at her tits hanging out while she's trying to seduce her partner and make her jealous. Uh, that's yeah. pretty much the, the by point. Fu- first by and fucking another guy. Yeah, so by fucking it, another yeah, guy. Yeah, so, so. It's, it's not... Yeah, you know, you're right. It's not like, oh, this is. It's like, not like a political oh. stance so much as it is, you know, oh, look at this sexy scene here. But at the same time, you know, it is it is kind of forward thinking, uh, especially I did like that that line where, you know, uh, the interviewer, Cristiano Berti, who's interviewing Peter Neal about his book, saying, oh, yeah, this the gay the gay in that is it's a depraved person. You know, no wonder the, the murderer has to kill him. And he's like, he says he's gay. So what? Yeah. Yeah. Peter, Peter, and yeah. Peter Neal's really quick to yeah. respond to that. He, you know, he says like, depraved. What do you mean? He's gay. Who cares? Mm-hmm. How, you know, he's, he's literally just says like, that's depravity. It's, I mean, how is that depravity? And then you have the interviewer respond saying like, well, are, you're a strict Christian too, aren't you not? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And he's like. Well, he's like, well, I, I believe in abortion and divorce because th- those things happen, but, you know. Yeah, but gay stuff is... But that's corruption. Yeah, you know, that's corruption. But stuff and, is not so cool. Yeah, and Peter Neal's just like, what? Well, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's I mean, a, it doesn't... It doesn't I'm not going to say it's this this film does not, like, divulge no, into no. this as, like, some political thing. But when you think about it, you're right. It is, like, like wow, 19... Like, was it? 80, 1982. 82. That's very forward thinking. It was. Even though, even though it's a very small bit, it's like, like, just for him, like to be like, they're gay. Who cares? Yeah, Republicans should have a watch, <laughs> see what they think. Um, but at the same time, it, it is forward thinking in a lot of ways too, because it it's th- you know bringing up that subject of like, you watch horror, you're most likely com- t- to commit crimes. You know, there's a lot of people that think like, "Oh, you like horror movies," which then gets you, translated. You like death metal. To, well, as I say, which gets translated later on to like video games, and you had like, yeah, you know, like Mortal Kombat, and like now, especially now today, like if somebody like when Call of Duty Modern Warfare Two came out, and you had the, the fucking no Russian mission where you oh, yeah. just go into an airport and slaughter, you know, yeah. slaughter people. Probably had people like, why, you know, why, you know, yeah, oh, why did that happen? But at the same time, like it's like questioning that. It's, it, it is. It's it's forcing the the person to question. You know, as a Russian, is you're in that sense, you're supposed to feel terrible for having. To, you're like forced to do it. The game is forcing you to kill all these innocent people, and you're supposed to be like, "Wow, I really don't want to." But think about where my character's at right now. He's undercover. He's you know, he's a Russian person. He we have to we have to do it. And it's kind of that thinking that, you know, no, you shouldn't be but glorifying this. I, but I, I, not only that, it also gets into the whole, you can understand what you're either in the, like, say, like a video game doing is wrong or what you're seeing in a film is wrong. But you can also get, like, an enjoyment. Not saying, like, when you're playing, like, the 
no Russian mission, like Call of Duty, you're sitting there like laughing. Like, ah! <laughs> there might be some people doing that, yeah, I'm but sure there are. I, but there, are, you know, there are things afterwards, like when you're playing the game and like, if you know, you're fighting the war or whatever, or watching a film that involves something like this, where you can get enjoyment from watching it, but you can discern from your own morals and your own viewpoint, you know, okay, what I'm seeing is wrong, or what I'm doing, like being having the doom in this game is wrong. But it's, you know, it fulfills, like, a certain gratification set, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, that's really the point about Tenebrae, too. Because um, in that scene with the interviewer, who, I mean, I guess we should just put spoilers on this. It's, like, I mean, this film's been out for, like, 25 years now. But more than that, 30, 30, 30, almost, 30 almost 35 30. years. <laughs> um, yeah. 35 years. Um, so, Christiana Berti, who does become the the one killer within Tenebrae, uh, interviewing Peter Neal, we, f- we find out, like, this guy is totally not understanding the book at all. Like, he's read this book, thinks he understands what's going on in this, and Peter Neal's like, no, you're not reading this correctly. Well, not only that, but, like, uh, like, a book like that, um, unless the author themselves is, like, depraved and mad, mm-hmm. wouldn't be telling you to sit there, take what you're reading as gospel. Yeah. Like, Stephen King wouldn't have you read The Shining and, like, glean from that. Moral of the story, when your wife's being a bitch and you're locked in a, you know, a hotel for a long time... Yeah, go out and kill them all. Get, a, get an axe. Yeah. Kill your family. You know, that's not what you're supposed to... You right, know. exactly. And, and you can see there... Especially within Tenebrae, and that's kind of the point that Argento's making, is that, sure, Peter Neal has written a book where depraved things happen, and has clearly made a point that that's not okay, and that's kind of like a, the moral of the story is not that depravity is is good and fine, but that we overcome it in some way, and and look at how it's been overcome. In in Tenebrae, uh, that's... The the killer misunderstands the whole motive, and so it's really on the killer who has who has totally completely misinterpreted what has been intended, and that's his own mental illness. That's not anything that Peter Neal has done, and no matter that's if, that's the re- the reader's own projection exactly of the- and no matter if if it had been Peter Neal that had written that or a TV show that had shown somebody killing someone else or even a news article where someone killed someone, it could have been a trigger for this person with this mental illness to do the same things. It's it's not it's not based on this media just was like a a possession to this person who needed to do it. It became an obsession, certainly, but not not you know it did not possess this person to go out and do to commit these things. Even and though he, even though that is what in his mind his think, motive became. And I think another great uh, point to that too is uh, the character Tilda when during that interview too is chastising Peter. Saying your book is very, you know, against women. It's not feminist. Yeah, it's sexist. Be- because it's sexist because of all the murders that happened to women. In it and he's like saying, "No, it's 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 a book. You know, this is the story that I'm, you know, telling." And she's yeah. like, "Well, you know, but it's sexist." And he's like, "You know, I've like done these things. You know, I, I like fought for women's rights and all this. You know, so." I mean, so, and then why? So why do you think that? And she's like, "Well, why do you put that in the book then?" It's like, "Well, 
That's well, what the story called for. That's art itself. You know, you don't have to depict something that you create in art that mirrors, you know, your values. The whole point of art is to express a greater idea. Yeah, I mean, whether I think, whether you know it's something that you fully believe in or not, but it's something that like inspires that you were inspired to create. I think in a way that Peter Neal's voice is Dario Argento's voice coming out. Not always, obviously, but I mean, you can take that as a, a way of explaining Argento's work in the Jalo field too. Though, I mean, certainly a lot of people have found Jalo films to be sexist because most of the time it's women dying in various violent ways and part of that is simply because of the beauty of that art becomes very artistically beautiful i'm not saying that it's always right but in tenebrae that's not always the case either i mean it depends on what the story needs in this case there are multiple men die in this one you know it's it's not always about you know we just need the women men die and in some ways it's morbidly beautiful and or it's very dramatic artistic john saxon for one dying in the middle of a public street kind of grabbing out in a plaza yeah and nobody like nobody noticed it nobody noticed it not that crying lady unfortunately she was too wrapped up in her own grief to (laughs) watch someone get stabbed because she from that angle she had to have seen the killer and the way it's portrayed, too, it's supposed to be like, oh, maybe she's the killer, but you know what? She's not. She, yeah. And but she had to have seen it. I can't imagine. She literally it like straight is on, two like, steps away from him where then she realizes, oh, this guy's lying here bleeding to death. I know. <laughs> um, we talked at length about kind of the themes of, of Tenebrae. Um, in general, what did you think of the movie? Because you haven't seen it before. What? what? How did you feel? It is kind of a slow burner. It's uh, about a hundred minutes, so a little bit longer than you know most general length movies. But uh, I would say it's, it's a slow burn, even though there are multiple death scenes within it. It, it. it takes a while to really blossom into its plot. Yeah, and that's where I'd like compare it to The Fly. It's uh, you're right. It, it is a slow burner, like uh, especially on the violence end. Mm-hmm. A lot of that violence is muted, shown, but it's like cut. Mute, it's yeah. cut and muted until like the very end when like like for instance when you see the first kill it's just like stuffing paper and then like a quick slit of the throat and then you see like some hyper hyper exaggerated blood like in Dawn of the Dead where like you know it's like like almost a pinkish blood yeah. Um, and, like, that's the first kill, like, but it's not, like, very, it's not, like, really horrific looking, it's not re- overly violent, but we're at the end, you get the scene where Janet gets her arm chopped off by an axe and just blood blasts all, you know. Yeah, the, really iconic scene within Tenebrae. It's, uh, you know, so the violence kind of goes it with escalates the pace, escalates and goes with the pace of the film, it's, you know... Yeah. Like I said, with the fly, like the fly is very toned down and quiet and like you don't really hit those really high and grotesque moments until as you know, as the film progresses. It takes until like the very end, the climax for that to happen. Um But I like the film a lot actually. Mm-hmm. Um I thought 
for the most part, I thought the acting was well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, we watched the fir- first half of the film in Italian and then the second half in English. Um, it's mainly due because the disc skipped on us and we had well, to kind of yeah. reboot it. And uh, when we wa- decided to watch it in English, I did. Pre- I actually did prefer that. And I'm like you, I usually do prefer a film in its native language, but I think... I actually think they did a better job in the dubbing of the English. To yeah, and really, a lot of the actors did speak English within this film. You can tell, like Anthony uh, Francioso, who plays Peter Neal, the main character, he spoke English. John Saxon speaks English in this. It did, yeah, it didn't look like because like John Saxon, like when I was listening to him speak Italian, it was just like oh my, and like it, it, yeah, you can like like uh, like it took me out of it because I like I know John Saxon, so it's like oh god, that's you know that's uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of them did speak English anyway in it, so it makes more sense, actually, to watch the English version of it than the Italian. The Italian has more dub, I would say, because most of them are speaking English throughout, so I would say the Italian has more dub, and and it's it's not bad. I mean, I wouldn't say the Italian is bad in the same sense as some of the English dubs for Jello films can be, um, but I do... Yeah, I, again, I prefer the. English. I can get, I can get over like the bad like lip syncing with dubs. No, it's not the lip syncing. No, I no, I, yeah, saying, yeah. I I can totally get over that, but it's more when you hear the character speak and like if you you, you yeah. can tell that like it like that voice and the, doesn't really match what the actor's portraying. Then then yeah, that that's what throws me out of it. But um, yeah. Yeah, and then seeing John Saxon, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, I wish I would. I just want to hear his voice. Um, but I like the film a lot. I I think one of the great things about this film is the cinematography. Oh yeah, it's v- one of the most interesting points of the film. Actually, I think uh, a lot of the shots in this film are really good and really I kind I loved. The shot during the scene where you have the t- the two lesbians who are quarreling, and it goes after they're done arguing, and the one goes upstairs and the one stays downstairs, and then you have that. I guess the you would scaling call yeah scale cr- like house. like a crane shot of yeah definitely. just like slowly just working its way around the house and then like moving up. And I didn't realize when the, the one upstairs had put on the record is the theme. Is Goblin. Yeah, yeah I didn't know, know she was playing that because, like, I like the, though the song fit like the scene, you know, in its own weird, quirky way. Yeah, I didn't know it was like actually so when like she was yet like I always felt like the actor the actress downstairs like breaking the fourth wall and she's like shut that goddamn music yeah because it basically yeah, becomes diegetic sound at that yeah point. Like, so yeah. it's like I didn't, like I because I, 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 well, I guess I wasn't paying attention to her like put the record on like that was supposed to be the music but yeah. the whole shot of them like of the camera working its way from downstairs outside and up and down. And to the side of the house, and then like to that room, and like you so said, you get like then the, like the killer's perspective. It's like that was like two minutes of a, yeah, like, was, a, a yeah. great shot. Yeah, yeah, very extended, like fully no cuts, no cuts within that scene as they work up and down the house yeah. itself. Uh, and you see it a lot. Like the cinematography is so good because Argento definitely has a style for or an eye for style, like an eye for the 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 settings and the the places that he needs to do this. I mean, you think about the killer's lair, which we see 
earlier on in the film because at that point we really don't know who the killer is and and the one character who eventually dies at the hands of the killer um she stumbles on his his uh house um very expansive uh you get a lot of like exotic yeah exotic you get a lot of like uh higher up shots of it because it's so large and and like looming um you know he's he's got an eye for that sort of art nouveau aspect to it which adds a lot to the cinematography because you're kind of left there thinking like wow look at that cool looking different place you you even said like with that uh, the building, the exterior shot of the lesbian's house, it's almost like a Tetris block of, like, all of these, like, Tetris it was, pieces it was, stuck together. It was literally looked like, uh, I can't remember the artist's name, but the the stairs. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you remember the artist's name? I, I, I don't I know. I can't remember, but, you know, like, how, like, the different perspectives and, like, you know, yeah. the stairs... Just basically lead. Yeah, like same, all, all and, of the the outside shots yeah. of the building, they're like all different. It looked like it looked and, it looked like that, and it's like Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It leads to some interesting shots, some some interesting like angles that they can get because it makes sense for that house. Um, and one thing you got to say about Argento is he definitely had an eye for style with his with it, the direction and what he wanted to see with them mm-hmm. on the film. Um, and I will say that Tenebrae probably has one of his best plots. Um, as a writer, he often struggled with the surreal and, and putting everything to, to paper that he needed to get his point across. But Tenebrae is fairly straightforward. And, and even when it's not those flashback sequences, which we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, where they, they involve this one older woman with these younger uh, oh, male characters. Um, they at least do come together, whereas you think about some maybe some other giallos, they wouldn't really put that into context. They, they come together, but at the same time, they are kind of placed in very awkward points of the yeah. film. Um, which I'm suspecting was the intention. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it is weird to, like, jump from, like, okay, you're, like, in the hotel room talking about something, then all of a sudden you have this lucid dream-like sequence of this POV shot of seeing red heels and then, like, on a beach and then yeah. a bunch of guys. and then I think it's um kind of reminiscent of, like, the, the photos developing almost, like, the, like a flashback develops, like a memory develops in your mind. Like the photos. Well, that the, I was gonna say because they after those each of those flashbacks are played out, you have a shot of the a close up of, of the killer's eye, and like, and then like it cuts to like a red, like as as if it like a, a type of red though that it's like a dark room. Yeah. Um, you know where you would see you know fo- photos get developed. Yeah. So. so it's pretty interesting, and I do I actually really like those flashbacks for this film us and i almost would like it a little bit more if it was even left out of that uh final explanation for what they were because you get the inspector's uh explanation of like oh okay yeah, this he, is what it what, well, what he, happened. let's say he doesn't exposit dump at the end yeah he, like you know like explains and i almost would would like it to not have that um and just leave those those flashbacks intact because then you 
the viewer is forced to kind of put them in context. We, From what we see, we realize, okay, there's this older woman. She's kind of seductive. She's seducing these younger men. And that's really where the corruption starts. We talk, the, Tenebrae start, talks a lot about corruption, about corruption of uh, the killer from the Tenebrae novel. Um, but also, we have to start with that corruption at the the younger level where Argento kind of reverses the molestation aspect of, you know, older men with younger girls um, and uses a older woman with younger men. And clearly it's, it is a, like a sexual molestation of sorts, a, a seduction where she's seducing like three or four different people and kind of using those boys for her play, you know, for playing with them. And that's what leads to Peter Neal's eventual murder. murder of her and then kind of obsession with that act throughout his life. Even though I I don't think that Tenebrae does a great job of emphasizing how disturbed Peter Neal can be, I think that it uses that only when it when necessary. No, I, I agree, because that doesn't come out until the very end, yeah. where you you see him having a full-on full breakdown. Yeah. Because throughout the entire film, he's a... He's pretty well put together. Well, I'm, rational, well put together person. Yeah. And as we said, there's there is two killers in this film. The the interviewer is the original killer who is acting out ten, you know, his uh, Peter Neal's novel of Tenebrae for having corrupted him, and then the other killer is Peter Neal for wanting the story to go on and you know to keep developing it to eventually kill his. Ex fiance mm-hmm. and her lover, who is John Saxon, or his his friend and mm-hmm. agent, uh, Bulmer. Um, now, and as I was, te- which, as I was telling you, I guess that. Yeah. Uh, like I'm not trying to pull that out of my ass. I guess that because even like I guessed it before. Like I was kind of, like as I was watching the film, I was kind of like, okay, at first I was when I was watching it. When I was thinking about who the original killer would be, my first thought jumped to the interviewer because he was quiet, kind of sit, you know, he sat off to the side and wasn't really a focal point. So usually, when you get like a thriller or some sort, they always try to like convince you, like, oh, it could be this person or it could, it could be that person, and it always ends up being like the person who like really didn't say or do anything like much. Reminds me of like L.A. Noir. When you get to the like murder desk, the homicide desk, and you find out the Black Dahlia killer is that one local rent uh, rent a bar that you meet uh, bartender that you meet in the second case, yeah, who's only there just and you ask a few questions and that's it. As soon as I saw him in that case, I'm like, he's the murderer. I know he's the murderer. And, and when it came out to be he's the murderer, I fucking knew it. I knew it because just just the way like oh you know he kind of pl- played himself. It's the same thing here. The way like the interviewer kind of acts, and the, the way they how they focus the attention away from him, and try to make you think it could be like you know several other people. That's what made me like think he would be like you know the murderer. And then when it came to like the possibility of a second one, when you see like it possibly reveal like sh- revealing to you that he is the murderer, and then he gets killed. 
at that, which at the that point they're not they don't really say that he was the murderer because he gets killed. So they're trying to like you know dis- distract you away from that he was the murderer. Yeah. Um, at the same time, made me think it had to then be Peter because when you have everything that's been going on, it's what seems impossible to be the murderer is got usually again. I told you, it's like the, it's, have you seen the usual suspects? No, I have not. So it's like the usual suspects, like, case, where it ends up being Kevin Spacey, the crippled retard at the end, who, you know, totally screws the cops over and makes them think, like, oh, he couldn't have done it, because he's a, he's, he's a, he's handicapped. Yeah. And then you find out, like, oh, he did do it. When, like, the cops finally piece together, like, everything. That's like how, like... For me, when I, like, watch, like, thrillers and stuff like this, that's how I, like, I look at it. So, like, it would seem impossible that, like, oh, Peter couldn't have anything to do with the previous murders because he was on a plane. He was in Rome yet. And and then it just, like, like when then you have him say that, you know, line quoting uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. Saying, like, you know, when, you know, you eliminate everything that's possible, the impossible must, you know, be the truth. If you're not paying attention, that's like that, that's him literally saying, "I'm the fucking ki-, you know." Yeah, basically. I did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's OJ coming. You know. O- <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I I I was thinking, you know, before that, that it was him too. But when after he said that, I was like, "It's him." Yeah. It's you know. So I mean, I I do think this, I, and don't get me wrong, I do think Tenebrae does a good job of like. How it like kind of leads things and structures things and how kind of makes you because there there's a bunch of people you could kind of try to guess in this whodunit story. I but for me like for me when it comes especially when it comes to that line alone it's like you know yeah yeah I just like the two killers that's that's nice to have those yeah two I don't know it's, it's a, generally it's not the case well I should say it's not the case where you find out about the one killer so early on. I mean, a lot of times there's two killers, but not a lot of times is there a killer that dies and then a new killer that takes the place. So it, it's a ni- it's a nice little twist there that you get. Um, and again, but again, like at the same time, they didn't reveal because they like it. They it somewhat leads you into th- like it's not it doesn't really like I said it doesn't really lead you into believing it's the interviewer. But there are like I said there are some like subtle things that make that you could point that to like me is like the lack of attention just like his overall quietness would make me think like you know because they would build up all these other people and then it's like oh like as a shock factor like it was him yeah and but then when they give you the evidence it's like okay maybe it was him and then they kill him and so it's like well maybe it wasn't him and then it takes later into the film to realize when you have the uh, the one kid come back after, because he witnessed him getting killed. After he comes back, you realize, like, wait, he was talking to himself, saying that he did it. He killed him, and then he got killed by somebody else. And that's later in the film. So that 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 is like a great, like, you know, I I I do, like I said, I do think Argento does a good job sh- structuring it and pacing it out. But at the same time, I think if you if you're paying close attention, you you can figure this out. It's not, yeah, you're not gonna be. Like, oh, wow, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that, like I said, the, the, films like this, like, they require full attention. You, yeah. You can't, you know, go in half asleep. And... Yeah, I would hope that you'd pay full attention, because there's a lot of 
a beauty in those scenes. Um, you know, the, the, the shot where uh, Peter Neal dies because of that weird metal piping artwork is one of those weird sort of surrealistic moments where, you know, it happens. Who has this yeah, modern right? art structure exactly. that's got this big, sharp, you know, dangerous... Yeah. But at the same time, that me- that it's a great irony because the way he killed the seductive older woman from his childhood... Yeah, is the it same- was a stab. By a very sharp... Yeah. Jagged edge like that, so that yeah. you know that's a that that's a great irony. And nice, yeah. Um, I I love John Saxon, and I love him in this film quite a bit because Dude. he plays kind of an asshole. Not his usual. Not his usual. I mean, he oh, he's always a little bit sarcastic, but in this film, he he plays more of like a sleazy person, especially as this agent. Um, and I love the obsession with the hat. I love it. It's just a, a great addition to this film, especially early on where he's questioned about his hat. He's like, yeah, it's a great hat. Stays on when I whip it around in my head. And then, and then again, there's another callback to it where he takes his hat off and he's like kind of... Just sets on a random cart. Yeah, sets on a cart and is kind of like fiddling with it so that it's, it's perfect. And then make sure to grab it before somebody else steals the card away. So, I love John Saxon. We'll have to do a John Saxon month at some point. I agree. I agree. So, so did you uh, enjoy your first Jello experience? I did. I, I liked it a lot, actually. Um, like I said, I think from a cinematography standpoint, the film is beautiful. I do think some of the editing is awkward. But it's to be expected from, like I said, I think just like the way it they kind of co- cobble certain scenes together. Yeah. Like when you have them find out like it's been six like weeks between the first killing and the second killing. It's like, I didn't know. I fe- feels like two days might went by. Like, yeah. like, it's like the film has no sense of time. Yeah. And I think that's due to the editing. I mean, the, the, yes, it's. So the, I mean, I think that's a, it's, that's a very small problem. Um, I think overall the main cast does a decent job. I do think John Saxon's a highlight. I don't think they give him enough to do though. Yeah, that's uh. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I I do like the twist in this film. I think that's really good. I do like what the film kind of has to say about, like, media and how people interpret it. Yeah. I do like how... I like how, the, the like, the violence in the film's portrayed. And just like I said, as it, the film's a slow burner, the violence goes with that. It slowly builds and burns. I love the soundtrack. Go- uh, that theme... Goblin is, is great. That is amazing. And as we were saying, it's so inappropriate, but so right at the same time. Like, imagine, like, if, like, a horror film today, like, The Conjuring 2. That was, like, in The Conjuring 2. You'd be sitting there going, like, what the fuck? You know. Yeah, it would seem so inappropriate for that moment. But in in, uh, Tenebrae, it just seems right. Yeah, it works. It works. Especially when, like, there's any, like, running or activity scene. That plotting baseline... Definitely works. I love it. I, lo- I love just, just sitting down listening to the Goblin soundtrack. Well, as I say, and it's like it makes me think too back to like Dawn of the Dead, where like when I first saw Dawn Except of the Dead, yeah. it's like 
why the fuck is the ending on this like happy little xylophone? Like, it's like it makes no sense. When I think about it now, it's like, oh, it's so great because like the film ends on such a downer. Yeah, everyone's dead except fucking Ken Forey and the blonde chick, and they fly away from the mall. It's been overrun by zombies. Everyone's dead. And it's just like, hey, you know? yeah, and like it's a great contrast. Even though I know the original, I wish they, I would have loved the film to end that film to end the way as originally supposed to Romero had planned, which is they both die. You know, he gets killed because the way he escapes from the zombies at the end is totally fucking ridiculous. And we'll talk about it when we like eventually yeah, when get we to when we do a Romero month. But I, I love the fact that that film. Was really supposed to end with like he gets like eaten by zombies and then she kills herself by throwing herself into like the helicopter blades because she doesn't think that they can get out and then you fi- like s- slowly see the camera pan to like the fuel gauge in the helicopter and it's on E and then you slowly hear the chopper blades. Yeah, that would have been like a great and, like and then like go they go to the gonk that like would be like hilarious in like a very morbid sense of like everyone's dead they're all fucked. <laughs> yeah, it's the end of the world as we know it. Yeah, it's here, the same thing. With, here, here's the xylophone. I mean, it's the same thing with Tenebrae too, though. Is that it ends on a really down note, uh, really with uh, you know, the screaming. That's how it ends. Just yeah, screaming after um, she and accidentally accidentally kills Peter Neal with that metal pipe, even though she knows that he's really not a good person at this point. Still is horrified. I will that. say that's kind of one of, that is a slight flaw in the film too, because by the end when she accidentally kills him and she knows everything that's wrong with Peter, she's like seems like she's like in love or attached to him. Yeah. But at the same time, there's not really any chemistry there. Yeah, there hasn't really the, been throughout. They do have like that moment where they stay in the same and, house. And, yeah, and not only that too, like they don't really explain why, like. Why does Peter hate his fiance so much? Yeah. If he hates her, why are they fucking fiance? Like, why is he been like, uh, fuck this? Yeah. You know. Same thing with her. Like, she's fucking John Saxon on the side. But if, you know, if you want to fuck John Saxon, then just be like, all right, I don't want to be with you anymore. Yeah. I'm going to fuck your agent instead. Well, that's, it, that's human relationships, I guess. It just, if you just think, like, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying that's like a huge thing wrong with it. But if you like, if, yeah. if you think about it, it's like, come on, okay, man. One thing we haven't mentioned too about that uh, whole ending too is uh, the great shot of uh, the inspector when he arrives. Back, he goes back into the crime scene where Peter killed Janet, yeah. his fiance, and then killed just had killed himself. Yep. And you get him for no reason going back into the building. Yeah. And having him bend down and then you see Peter. Yeah, that is good. That is great. If you're looking real close, you can, you can see, see his ear. ear. You can see like his earlobe. Yeah, you can tell that he has bigger ears than uh, the inspector does, but at the same time, it's not. It's a good scene. That yeah, no, that is yeah. great. And then when he pops back up and like so he covers over them, and then he gets yeah. But but he does. By the way, the inspector deserved to die he because by he, he is a terrible inspector. They should have had Peter Sellers playing fucking the Pink Panther. Yeah, as the inspector because this guy Mr. sucked. Magoo. He sucked at his job. He's terrible. 
He's he, really bad at it. Like, he like, like he I said, does literally nothing throughout the, this entire investigation. He's constantly just asking Peter for like. That's another reason that why like it gave like Peter away to me as like being a, one of the killers is because the just how he's constantly being like, you know, like not even suspecting him, just like. Well, he's obviously focused on you, and what? And again, like you think about it, it's like usual suspects mentality. The person who's least likely to be your suspect, yeah. he's going to be the one. Yeah, so like, he's a terrible and one. so like, and when at the end he's like, "Oh, after you said, you know, you know, everything that's impossible, you know, once you've eliminated all everything that's possible, the impossible must be true." Because again, not only that, Peter in that scene when he's talk like after. Uh, the interviewer gets killed, so you have the first murderer out of the way. They're trying to figure out who killed him, and Peter even says, like, something just doesn't, like, as a detective writer, he's like, just something doesn't add up. He's like, someone's either alive that should be dead, or either somebody's dead that should be alive. That is, one, that's great writing. Yeah. And two, like, again, that's like, that's a dead giveaway. That wouldn't. I don't think any film that's ever done something like that has ever inserted that, and it ends up that's like kind of like a red herring. Yeah. For that character, it's always like, yep. Yeah. You know, point the finger that way. Yeah, it's good. It's a good line. I like it. I like. I, 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 I like. I, I like. Yeah, I do love that whole scene, but I think that's even better than him quoting the Hound of Bas- yeah, Baskervilles. Yeah. Because that that's great. Like he's literally saying like, you know. So I think you know like, we're trying to figure out who did this and. uh... Something's just like we're we're missing a piece right now, and either someone's dead that should be alive, and either or someone's alive that should be dead. Yeah, it's great. So, out of ten black gloves, what would you give Tenebrae? Probably an eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. I would say eight point five for myself. I like, like I said, I like it a lot. I think there's a few things with uh. Just kind of like the plot, like like you said, like the inspector being a total dumbass. Yeah. Uh, being stupid for the sake of the story demands him kind to be, of, yeah. be stupid. And just like a, f- a few little things that, you know, nitpicky, you know, over, overall, I like this a lot. I thought it was really good. Like I said, I think it's a really good drill. I think it's something that's like going to be like a great kind of surprise for a lot of people. I think though, if you... But again, I think even like like I said, the best thrillers like like the usual suspects. If you're really paying attention, you'll figure it out. It's not gonna blindside you. Yeah, and I don't know if it's a really su- supposed to blindside you so much because even in the uh, film itself, um, the uh, inspector s- says that he fi- was it the inspector. He says that he figured out um, the killer in. Uh, Peter Neal's novel about 30 pages in. Mm -hmm. So I feel like maybe that's Argento saying like, you know, the killer, yeah, the the twist of who it is is important, but it's really not the point of Tenebrae itself. Like, it's not the main thing. So even if you figure out who it is earlier on, it's not gonna... Because there's still a lot of surprises left in store for you. Like, uh, the dog has really nothing to do with the rest of Tenebrae at all. And that's just Dario <laughs> that's Argento. A, that's, a, that, that's another thing that's like kind of like a 
low point in the film. Just just because it's, I mean, it's because it's, I mean, it's so com, it's com, it's hilarious to me. But at the same time, it's like, oh my, like it's kind of cringeworthy too. At the yeah. same time, well, that's Dario Argento because Suspiria has another dog in it as well, and I, I think that's just uh, like a theme, an obsession that he has is like dogs. Like dogs are scary. The big dogs can be scary, and that's that's a thing that he puts into his films. Um, the other thing being. Um, the other surprise being that scene where uh, uh, Jane gets her arm chopped off. Very surprising. Like, all of a sudden, it just kind of happens. Yeah. yeah arm, yeah. arm is chopped off, blood splattering all over the wall. That's a very surprising, like, shocking scene because it just, it comes out of nowhere. You're expecting her to, like, shoot Anne as she walks in the door or something like that. Or, or like, if she does get killed, like, it'd be, like, everything else. Like, kind of, like, off, yeah. off yeah. screen. You can see the axe, and then you see, like... Like a reaction face facial shot, but not nothing. Yeah, you know, really bodily done. And yeah. this is, you know, arms shot, limbed off, and blood just poof. Yeah. So I mean, I don't think the point is always to just figure out who the killer is. No, but... I, I I know that because I I do agree with it. I think the whole overarching theme of the film is more how do you know how do you react to media. And who you know who's responsible, and how you like how you interpret that. But I think too, as basic layer, it is a who done it. So it is. If you're not really going into this, if you're not if you're not wanting to look for anything deeper in this film, that's what you're going to take away from it. You're not going to look at this film and be like, well, obviously you know the killer's an idiot because he took this you know novel too fucking seriously. It's, you know, going to be just like, oh, this is why that killer did this, and this is why then Peter did that. So I think you can enjoy it on two different levels. If you're, you know, you can just take it for as a whodunit horror mystery, or you can dive deep more into the whole kind of aspect that Argento's trying to get at with, like, how we interpret media and how, uh, yeah. you know, the, the relationship, I guess you could say between the artist and the, the one, you know, that's consuming it. Exactly. All right. That concludes our, in such a un uneloquent way. Of- uh, it was good. It was good. It, you, you really brought that, brought that home. <laughs> um, so that concludes, well, actually, uh, we watched the synapse Blu-ray. Of uh, Tenebrae, which was which released is great. on a single disc, but they also released a steelbook, which I also own. Yeah, the, the Blu-ray is That was great. great quality. That's a really good quality. They did a lot of great color restoration to it, uh, which is important to this film. You would think sometimes, oh, great color restoration. Like, they spent, like, days on color restoration. What, what's the point? Like, when you have, like, an orangish tone, like most of... The orange-blue tone, like most films have nowadays, but... For Tenebrae, the color restoration is really important to the the film itself, especially with like the red shoes that come up later on in the film, which um, are you know like I said, very vibrant, yeah, very and, vibrant, and then like the blood, like I said, is almost like a neon pink. The way yeah. it's like it's like like I said, hyper realistic. It's supposed to be. I rented a DVD from Netflix to watch Tenebrae when I watched it the first time, and wow, this is like way a step up in terms of quality from that DVD, like so much. I, I feel like I watched a different movie because of how great this film looks. So, 
definitely check out that Synapse Blu-ray. Uh, even though it's just the one disc version, it still has a ton of special features. You should really check it out. And it does have the Italian and the yep. English dub on English it. English with the subtitles. So that's great. Just want to put a plug out there. Um, thank you for listening to this episode of the Blood and Black Rum podcast. Um, I'm sure we'll be back next week with something else. I don't know what, though. Uh-huh. Maybe next week you'll lead the podcast. Maybe. That'd be fun. Be a little different. Mix, mix it up. Yeah, new voice on there. I'll just jump in when when possible. You'll lead it. Um, so I, we're not going to put out a we're not going to put out a, a movie title yet because we're going to still figure it out. But uh, we'll be back next week with a with a new episode. Um, if you want to follow us, you should check out our website. It's Blood and Black Rum Podcast at. Uh, Oh my god, I would do that every single episode. Let me <laughs> well, start again. Because it's a tongue twister. I know. You should check out our <laughs> website. It's bloodandblackrumpodcast.wordpress.com. Uh, at some point, we will expand to getting an actual uh, URL. But for now, we have a WordPress one. So just deal with it. You can follow us on there, literally, uh, with WordPress. Um, and we post all of our episodes up there as a post. You can also follow us on iTunes or Stitcher. Um, those are easy to do and you certainly will get all the updates on those, uh, or any other, you know, podcast, uh, network that you use because we're on those as well. Um, you can follow us on SoundCloud, a blood and black rum podcast is on there as well. And that's where we post our episodes first. So if you really want to be up to date with our podcast, follow us on there. You can leave us nice little comments. Uh, you can download from there. So that's a fun place to go as well. If you want to stay up to date, uh, you can also check us out on Facebook and, uh, I'm on Twitter at Ryan, R Y N E T M I E D W. You can give us any suggestions that you want to see for films or, uh, give us any comments and I will certainly let Martin know about them. Um, if you have any film recommendations that you want to shoot to us in an email, we also have an email address. It's blood and black rom podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're certainly taking suggestions for new films. Uh, if you want to be featured as like an ad or a promo on our on our uh, episode as well, uh, we're open to that, and we will certainly shoot you a trailer if you would like to share us on your own podcast. So uh, we appreciate the sharing is caring uh, mon- uh, uh, metaphor, and uh, we uh, definitely share and uh, give back to everybody who who uh, likes to give back to us. So. Um, Definitely let us know if you have a podcast that you would like to advertise on this podcast. Um, I think that's, uh, well, you can actually, you can, uh, you know, send us some money to help with our hosting fees, uh, uh, at PayPal. It's, uh, my email address, ryanpbarber at gmail.com. You can PayPal us and that's a one-time payment or you can use Patreon, uh, we are on Patreon as well, and that's recurring payment, so that's by episode. So just so you know, don't pledge like $20, and that's going to be per episode. We post four times a month. That's going to be 80 bucks a month for you, and you'd rather spend that on like your cable or something like that. So don't, don't do that. Just, just keep in mind. But anything that you can pledge, we very much appreciate. Uh, thanks for listening to Blood and Mike Rum Podcast. We hope to see you next time, and uh, until then, take care. See you later.